this is Jim Hughes from AFIO Now. We are a series of recorded presentations of former U.S. intelligence officers who have great stories to tell. Today, I'm actually um, joined by two of my former colleagues, a co-host and a guest. The co-host is uh, a good friend and former uh, colleague of mine and an AFIO board member by the name of Bill Richardson. Bill is the managing director of Thomson Reuters Special Services. He also has a 32 career, year career of um, being a senior officer at CIA in the analytic area and was himself a PDB briefer. And I'm going to turn it over to Bill and ask him to introduce today's guest. Over to you, Bill. Jim, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, even a greater uh, honor and pleasure to introduce uh, David Priest, uh, who we'll be interviewing today. And um, David, great to see you again as well, uh, and Jim virtually, but uh, great to see you. And um, again, an honor and pleasure to interview you about your book. And that book is the President's Book of Secrets. Um, and it's an absolute authority on intelligence briefings to US presidents. And um, I'm really interested in knowing what was your inspiration for writing the book? Thanks, Bill, and thanks, Jim, for teeing this up. Uh, back in the day when I was also working uh, at the agency, I applied for a job as one of the daily intelligence briefers. And back then, it was a relatively small team. This is early in the George W. Bush administration. But it was not long after 9-11, and they were hiring a few briefers. And I won't go into the details of it, but... During one of the interviews, they, they asked me a question, something about how I would handle a certain situation if I were giving a briefing. And my answer, I, I'm sure I said something, but I also remember saying, well, certainly I would you know, consult the standard operating procedures or whatever handbook you have based on past briefers' experiences. And I remember the look I got back from the people interviewing me as if I was speaking a, a foreign language because as you know, Bill, there is no such standard operating procedure manual. Uh, you're hired for your judgment and they expect you to go and do it. And I do remember thinking at the time, what a shame, because institutionally we have decades of experience of briefing the president and other senior level officials. And what a waste it is not to build on the experiences of others to do better with current officials. Um, that thought went on hold for a while. And then after I left the agency several years later, after having done the PDB briefing job, I was looking back at ways that I could talk about the PDB to some classes I was teaching. And I found a remarkable amount of material in presidential memoirs, in declassified documents, in press reports, in public speeches. And I realized there's a lot of material here about something that the American people don't know enough about. And so I reached out to John McLaughlin, a former deputy director of Central Intelligence and mentor of mine. And I presented this to him and said, John, there's, there's a lot of material out here on this topic, but it is also one of the most sensitive topics we deal with. What do we actually brief the president and how do we do it? Is it okay to write a book about this? And he looked me in the eye and said, not only is it okay, if you've determined that there's enough there for a book, 
you need to do it because you'll do it responsibly. You will protect the secrets that need to be protected instead of some muckraking journalist who tries to get PDB documents leaked to him or her to make the story sexy. Um, so those are my two motivations, both on the job and then after the job, realizing there's there's a story that can be told here and told well without actually exposing real secrets. Thank you, David. Um, outstanding. And, and, and again, thank you for, for taking up that challenge and doing it because it is a very important story to tell. And, uh, um, you know, I was one of those ones that could have used a manual also. So <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that. Um, you know, for those who may not be familiar with this book, um, David, what are the main themes that underlie the most privileged relationships between the intelligence community and the Oval Office? Yeah, the the book really covers the history of the president's daily brief and related interactions with the president and other senior officials. So in that vein, it really focuses on this daily document that has been provided to U.S. presidents for decades now and, and how that has changed over time. Uh, early on, of course, in the U.S. presidency, there was no daily book of secrets. Uh, presidents just got by on what they could, getting the secretary of state to give them diplomatic messages, but no intelligence to speak of until World War II. But even then, the documents that were going to President Roosevelt and eventually President Truman were not what we would call finished intelligence in the way that any of us who have worked in the intelligence business in the last half century uh, would see it. Um, it started developing a bit under Truman and Eisenhower, but it was still not personally tailored to the person who was the president. Instead, it was just offered to the president without any regard to how that person might take it. Um, that changed with John F. Kennedy. The CIA adapted its work into a new document called the President's Intelligence Checklist that was designed for Kennedy. It was written in a journalistic style because Kennedy was a journalist. It was written in short, digestible pieces on a small piece of paper bound in a way that he could stuff into his suit pocket and carry around with him during the day because he didn't like to sit and read for hours at a time. He wanted to be able to read something, go into a quick meeting, come out, read something again. And this president's intelligence checklist eventually transitioned into the president's daily brief in 1964 for President Johnson. And it's kept that name ever since. The, the main theme about this document and what it exemplifies about American intelligence is how much, how much the intelligence community tailors the product to the president and adapts to the style of the president without losing sight of the mission. The mission is to tell the president what he needs to hear, not what he wants to hear, but to do it in a way that will be appealing to the president. And that can be a bit of a balance because you want to appeal to the president to, to make sure that the president continues to get the information and analysis he needs, but you, you don't want to do it in a way that politicizes the intelligence in any way. So it's largely a difference of format and style for each president. Some of those highlights, I, I mentioned John F. Kennedy getting it in a foldable format that he could put away. For Lyndon Johnson, that evolved into a full-size document, and instead of being delivered in the morning, it would be delivered in the evening because Lyndon Johnson did a lot of work late into the night, 
sitting in bed reading, and his night reading stack was where he got the bulk of his presidential paperwork done. They just added the PDB to that stack. So definitely changed the schedule for analysts writing the PDB instead of coming in, working late at night, and then presenting early in the morning. Uh, PDB officers could work a regular workday and send it to the White House at the end of the day. Um, Jimmy Carter, as another example, Jimmy Carter was a man who liked to write. He did his thinking by writing things out. So they changed the format of the PDB to include a lot more white space, wider margins, and the ability of him to put that right on the document, which then they would get as feedback from his national security advisor. So it has ebbed and flowed over the years, both in terms of the adaptations and then whether it's just a written document or also an oral briefing. Uh, Gerald Ford was the first president to take an oral briefing as part of the PDB process from an actual working level intelligence officer, in his case, Dave Peterson. And then both George Bushes took daily in-person briefings uh, whenever they were in Washington in the Bush case and no matter where they were in uh, George W. Bush's case. Um, these, these themes weave throughout the book to tell a story of an adaptive intelligence community that never loses sight of its core mission. No, that's excellent, David. Thank you. And, and, and you know, having, you know, the, the 60 years or so of the PDB uh, and the, uh, the, you know, the constant evolution of it is a really fascinating read for me and, and to get to where we are today. Um, but reflecting on those 60 years um, or so, um, you know, if there was a golden age, if you will, of the PDB, um, what do you think that was and why? It's a good question because it depends on how you measure it. I think each president found that they appreciated the president's daily brief for what it gave them, but all of them felt like they wanted more. And uh, when I interviewed several of them for this book, that's I think that's exactly what Bill Clinton told me, is he wished that it had been even better. But again, what president wouldn't want better intelligence all the time? The two administrations that stand out the most are the Bush 41 and the Bush 43 presidencies. Um, the former, because this was the first time that we'd had a president who understood the intelligence business really well. You could say that Dwight Eisenhower understood it, but it was very much from a military commander's point of view, not from an intelligence collection and political decision maker point of view. Uh, Bush 41 was that man having been director of central intelligence himself and then being a very avid consumer of intelligence for eight years as vice president. So he came into office knowing what he wanted. He also knew that he needed to protect the material in the PDB if it was going to be of the most use to him. So he instituted a practice to eliminate some of the leaks and some of the security issues that plagued the Reagan administration of having intelligence community briefers, back then all CIA officers, bring the book to the people who got briefed. And that included him in the Oval Office, along with a few other senior officials, and then others like the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense. And he insisted that those people take an in-person briefing from a CIA officer. He said, you don't, you don't have to listen to the briefer talk. If you just want to be handed the book and, and read it, that's fine. But when that briefer leaves the room, so does the president's daily brief. It's not gonna sit around on your desk 
like it did and float around the West Wing of the White House during the Reagan years. And he himself followed the same rule where the briefer would come in. Back then, it was uh, almost exclusively Chuck Peters or Hank Applebaum. And they would brief the president when he was in town and a few others would attend the briefing and then they would leave. And it led to a very robust, uh, useful two-way relationship whereby the president got the most sensitive information on a daily basis that sometimes he would act on right away, where he would pick up the phone and call up a foreign leader based on something he read in the PDB. And he would just look at his national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, and say, you know, let's call the prime minister and act on this. And they would do it. It also gave the intelligence community really good feedback from the president about what was useful and what wasn't, because he wasn't shy about pushing back when he did not like the analysis he received. Um, I will also mention another administration as a possible golden age for the PDB, and that is the Bush 43 administration. Uh, his son took what his, his father had done and took it a step further in, in a couple of important ways. First of all, he decided from the beginning he wanted his CIA intelligence briefer with him wherever he was in the world. So on a day like September 11th, 2001, Michael Morell, his briefer, was with him because he had been, gone down to Florida for an education-related event. And he decided, I want Michael there to brief me, the PDB, because I won't be in Washington at that time. And Michael ended up flying around the country on Air Force One with him all day. So he got briefings all over the world from his PDB briefer. Not only that, but the PDB briefings evolved in his second term to include even more information. And this is because of things like the Iraq war and the quagmire that was starting to develop there. Some presidents might have said, I don't want to get this intelligence every day anymore because it's mostly bad news. It's mostly pointing out how bad things are getting and how much worse they could get. Uh, Bush went the opposite route. He actually doubled down on intelligence and said, I don't just want the PDB every morning. I am also going to add a series of what eventually became called deep dives, where senior analysts from across the IC, um, CIA at first and then across the IC, would come in to talk to the president in depth later in the day about various topics. At the beginning, largely Iraq and Afghanistan, but over time, ended up touching every continent and almost every issue on the president's agenda, giving hundreds of analysts the chance to get real face time with the president talking in the weeds about specific topics. Um, if that's not a golden age for briefing the president, I'm not sure what is. Yeah, thank you, David. Yeah, and I, I um, you know, remember those deep dives quite well uh, when I was uh, you know, helping to lead South Asia. And um, it really was uh, a, a testament to the investment that President Bush made in intelligence. And um, I know that all the, all the analysts that I had that participated in those were, uh, were just over the moon when they you know, came back from that briefing because it had such an attentive audience and uh, the president was uh, quite gracious as well. Um, you know, you've, you've talked a lot about, uh, you know, whether directly or indirectly on the research that you've done. And um, it is quite impressive. Of course, and, and you, you did more than 100 interviews for this book, including all of the previous administrations, living presidents and vice presidents, and CIA directors, and almost every former national security advisor, secretary, secretary of state, and so on. Um, of all those you know, personalities and interviews, who surprised you in those interviews, and how? 
Yeah, it was surprising in in several ways. Uh, first of all, it was surprising that so many people wanted to talk about this. Uh, this is a sensitive topic for many. And of course, when you're at the level of a president or a vice president, certainly, but even of a former secretary of state, secretary of defense or other senior official, you have no shortage of demands on your time. And yet almost to a person, the dozens upon dozens of people I reached out to were, were eager to participate. And that was a bit of a surprise. I only found out later that I had some significant help, uh, some help I knew about. I knew that um, Mike Hayden, for example, who I interviewed early in the process, uh, was a fan of the project and was opening doors for me in various places to talk to others and to vouch for me, essentially. Uh, but only later did I find found out that the same thing was happening from George H.W. Bush and his chief of staff. Um, I had spoken with him early, relatively early in the process, gotten some information from him. And then suddenly my calls to President Bill Clinton's office and President Jimmy Carter's office and other officials, those calls were getting returned. And it was after the project came out uh, that I found out that they were calling him and saying, who's this David Priest guy calling me? Is this legit? And, and he would give a thumbs up and, and say, yes, this is this is a real project. Uh, obviously flattering and, and honoring on, on my part. Um, it also showed that he cared about the project. Um, he ultimately wrote the foreword for the book and used it characteristically not to brag about himself, but to pat people on the back who normally aren't thanked, which are intelligence officers. Um, there was a bit of a surprise for me in uh, one of the interviews, and it showed my naivete about doing this kind of research with busy policymakers. I remember sitting down with Henry Kissinger in New York to get his reflections on the book, which he had seen as national security advisor for Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford and as secretary of state when he was dual hatted in that. Um, a really crucial period for the PDB in so many ways. And I went in there, I had done most of my research already and I, I got his impressions, his reflections on President Nixon himself, on the process in the White House, his impressions of this intelligence document. Um, and I had found this wonderful gem, an, an archivist's dream uh, going into the presidential libraries. I, I found this document from March, 1970, a memo produced by Andy Marshall, who ended up doing great things at the Pentagon, but at the time was on a contract to support the National Security Council. And they had tasked him to do a study of the paper flow of intelligence to the president because the National Security Council and the White House Situation Room give information to the president all the time. And that was certainly true for Nixon. And then suddenly out of the sky lands this president's daily brief that comes from this other organization, but clearly is focusing on some of the same issues depending on the crises of the day. So Andy Marshall put together a study with some recommendations and proposals. And there were many interesting things in there but one of them had to do with the way that paper moved from the National Security Advisor himself to the president and the overlap this presented and the issues that the National Security Advisor should address to make sure the president was best served. So here I am in this interview with Dr. Kissinger and I pull out this memo from March of 1970 and I put it in his face and I say, here's this memo. Um, do you remember you know, what you thought when you saw it and how you reacted to it? And he just turned his head and looked at me 
Um, he didn't say the words, are you kidding me, son? But that was clearly the vibe he gave. And it was at that moment I realized that, that this memo from at that point, 40 plus years earlier, was very important to my research project. And I thought this was wonderful history. But to him, it was one of probably dozens or hundreds of memos he had seen that day, which repeated itself every day for many years. Of course, he didn't recall exactly what he was thinking when he saw it. Um, so that was a bit of a surprise, but it was a good humbling surprise for me to, to realize that uh, research is tough, especially based on interviews when people are trying to recall specific events that happened in the past. No, thank you. That's a great story. Uh, it's it's uh, quite terrific. And um, it is a, a good thing to remember as well for uh, anyone doing that type of research. Um, you know, your, your book rightly focuses on the people and the processes involved in preparing and producing the PDB and delivering it instead of the secrets themselves for obvious reasons. Um, what jumps out at a high level of what we have done well and what probably needs further improvement, especially now in a fast moving digital environment? Yeah, it was a challenge to write a book, in a sense, a biography of the PDB and not be able to talk about the subject itself in much depth. Some of the older PDBs had been declassified, but uh, at the time of writing this book, very few had been. So it was almost like astronomers trying to describe a black hole. You can learn a lot by what happens around it and the effects it has on other things, but it's a black hole. And that's how this felt. Uh, it, was, it was important to me in, in telling the story to, to relate those effects, that kind of the gravitational effects of the PDB. So that could be the reactions to it, it could be other people feeling they had to read the PDB just because the president was reading it. So all of those stories are, are in there. The change part of it is really interesting to me that the process has remained largely the same. That is, analysts working their accounts think of things that might be presidential or they rely on a current intelligence staff in the older days to do a lot of that for them. Then they develop something and, and they have to decide what's the threshold for presidential attention to this. It goes through an editing process and then somebody briefs it, um, sometimes in writing only, sometimes an oral briefing. And overall, I think that process has worked well, but the things around it change. The number of inputs from other agencies change. The Defense Intelligence Agency, for example, was created around the time of the PDB, but didn't contribute to it for decades. And in the 1980s, DIA tried to produce its own PDB, which ended up getting incorporated into the PDB process and delivered to the, to, to the President Reagan at the time on Saturdays. And then, of course, going back about 15 years, we had the creation of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which took over the PDB process, still largely using CIA analysts and uh, CIA processes, but giving the entire intelligence community a chance to weigh in. So the environment around the PDB has changed. So has technology. And one of the biggest changes you're very familiar with from your experience briefing was when we started producing the PDB on a tablet. The president got a very special iPad and it's still analytic content. It's almost like an e-reader in some ways, but it does allow a different method of transmitting information and that might work better for some presidents than others in terms of reacting to images, 
reacting to videos. We've taken videos into presidents for decades. Doing so isn't necessarily hard, but having it in his hands where he can touch and manipulate active graphics, um, hear the sound of the voice of the person he's about to have a phone call with, things like that do take it up a level. They also do raise expectations. And one of the things that the PDB will have to deal with in coming years is the fact that information just moves faster now than it did in the 1960s. Should the PDB become a publish when ready product? That is something tied to the president's desk uh, or somewhere near the person of the president that is updated with analysis as soon as it's ready based on events going on around the globe? Should it be something that is interactive whereby the president just doesn't talk to a briefer, but the president can actually press a button and talk to the analyst at the desk to follow up on specific details. That presents a huge array of problems for management and oversight, but I could imagine some presidents really liking that in the same way that President Kennedy and President Bush 41 were known to actually call CIA and talk to individual analysts. There's no doubt in my mind that a future president might like the ability to do that as well. Technology enables us to do that in a way now that was hard to imagine several decades ago. Yeah, thank you, David. Yeah, it's uh, going to be that age-old question of a human and a machine, and we'll see what happens. But I think, as you related, it's it's that blending of the two that that, that can make it work, and uh, with, with the technology. Um, you know, you you relate, of course, the observations and recollections of others in the book, refers and uh, policymakers, and so forth. Um, I'd like to know what experiences stand out for you during your time as a briefer during the very difficult period in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. Yeah, that was um, that was an interesting time. I don't think any briefer would find his or her experience uninteresting, but it was not long after 9-11, and I was picked to be the daily PDB briefer for the attorney general at the time, John Ashcroft and the FBI director. That was Robert Mueller at the time and for quite a bit of time afterwards. Um, I had a, I guess every briefing experience is unique, but I had one that was a bit challenging in, in some ways. Uh, first of all, instead of having one customer, I had two and I rarely briefed them separately. Almost always I would have the attorney general sitting across from me and have the FBI director sitting next to me. Um, both of them legitimate senior customers for intelligence, um, two very different personal styles, and yet I would be briefing them in the same setting. Uh, one man in particular made this easy, and that was Bob Mueller, because the, he reported to the attorney general, and he treated that briefing like it was the attorney general's briefing, even though I was also giving him information. So a lot of time I would be talking through an issue and explaining something to the attorney general, and then I would see out of the corner of my eye, Director Mueller flipping ahead, reading material I had given to him on issues I knew he wanted supplemented. Um, so I found a way to make it work, but uh, it was a bit of a challenge to do that. Uh, the other part of that that was interesting is seeing how much, how much they cared about the content of the PDB and how it moved stories forward that they, that they were working on. Um, this mattered to them in particular because Every morning after my briefing, they would run downstairs, get in a car and go up Pennsylvania Avenue to meet with the president, the vice president, 
the Homeland Security Advisor and the um, National Security Advisor. And this was a daily terrorism related meeting that happened right after the president himself received his PDB briefing. So you could guarantee if there was something in the president's daily brief that related to anything that would be in that homeland and terrorism related session, he was going to ask the attorney general or the FBI director, what are we going to do about this? And if they weren't prepared from my briefing to know what he was talking about, they failed him and I failed them. So I felt like I had a almost a double job there. I had to explain the same analysis that, that all the other briefers were doing for their customers. But I also had to prep them uh, not to fail the commander in chief that they were about to go and brief themselves. Most of the time that was relatively easy um, because I had great help. I had the president's briefer who I could be in touch with right after the briefing to find out if anything had come up. Um, sometimes coordinating with them before going in, in terms of making sure that we had the same supplemental material going in. So that generally worked well. Um, the only real difficulties in it were the days when odd things happened. And you know this from your briefing experience, when something's just out of the norm and you have to handle those curveballs that you weren't expecting. Uh, in my case, the one that stands out the most is one day I'm in the briefing room that we normally briefed um, the, uh, the SIOC at the Justice Department. And Bob Mueller was uncharacteristically not on time. Usually the briefing started at, and I don't recall the exact time, maybe seven o'clock, maybe 6.30. I don't remember exactly when, but normally you could set your clock that he would be there before that time, well, within a minute or two. Um, not this day. I, was, I remember looking at the clock and noticing the attorney general's there, and he's actually waiting for the briefing to begin. We're just engaging in small talk. And I look at the clock and it's just there. And right then I hear footsteps coming down the hallway outside, approaching the open door into this big conference room. And I look over and I see the attorney, I'm sorry, the FBI director coming in the door and he's talking to somebody. And clearly there's someone behind him because as he turns the corner toward the seat that he normally sits in next to me, I see a boom microphone coming in the door after him. And that's not a normal thing when you're in a PDB briefing. Maybe your experience was different than mine, but normally you didn't have a, a TV news crew following your principal in as you're sitting there with the PDB wide open. So I had that moment of panic of the nation's secrets being revealed on live TV. Later on, I found out that this was a recording session for one of these things on network TV, you know, getting to know the FBI director, a day in the life at the bureau, something like that. And, and Director Mueller was allowing them to follow him around through much of the day. Well, as he turns this corner and comes towards the chair, he must have seen this look of horror on my face because he stops and, and seems to have realized what's happened. And he looks at me and says, David, you know, essentially saying, do you want the crew? Can they come in here or not? And I look at the PDB with the top secret president's eyes only on it. And I look at him. I say, no, <laughs> um, not my call. It's, it's not my conference room. But, but he had asked me whether it was appropriate or not. Um, and I think my no was emphatic enough that without looking back, he reached behind him, slammed the door onto the microphone for these poor people standing outside, um, signifying that the briefing was ready to begin. 
Um, it turned out well, but I always felt a little bit funny about that. Um, I was pleased to see that that did not show up in the produced special that they made about the FBI director. Oh my goodness, that's a, that's a really good story. And I'm very uh, pleased to say I didn't have a close call like that. So <laughs> that's, uh, but uh, clearly you handled it well. And, uh, and uh, I think the, the FBI director appreciated that. Um, and that, that's, that's, that's a great story. Um, and moving a little bit into uh, the future perhaps, or the present, um, you know, your book came out in the middle of President Obama's second term and you do offer some insight into that administration. Um, but what might a chapter on the current administration look like? Um, how do the book's themes carry forward or not today? I think that the major themes hold up, which is that intelligence continues to be collected, intelligence continues to be processed, intelligence continues to be analyzed, and intelligence continues to get to the president of the United States, even though this president is dramatically different than his predecessors in, in many ways, including how he views intelligence. Uh, many pundits thought at the beginning of this administration, based on things that candidate Trump had said and president-elect Trump had said, that there was no way these intelligence briefings were gonna last because the job of intelligence ultimately is to tell truth to power to deliver messages that the boss doesn't want to hear, but needs to hear. And it sure seemed like his personality and demeanor was not going to be open to that. Well, big surprise on us, because what has happened? Uh, the president's daily brief continues to be produced. Whether he reads it or not, he continues to take semi-regular in-person briefings. And this has gone on through his entire presidency. Something is working for him. Um, only he would probably be able to tell us what, but he finds some value in those briefings or he wouldn't be taking them because so many presidents have not taken in-person briefings. So I think there's a bit of a surprise there. What we really don't know is, does it matter? And that's hard to assess for any presidency. Uh, usually some reports will come out during the presidency itself and then whether it's a memoir afterwards or some other personal history from participants, they will talk about the influence that intelligence had on policy and if there were any major issues going on between the two. This administration, uh, I have a feeling based just on the raw number of accounts that have come out during the presidency itself, that we will learn a lot after the presidency about exactly how that relationship worked. We have reporting that's come out that is telling in some ways and enormously unhelpful in others. Uh, the reporting suggests that the president doesn't like to hear messages that he doesn't agree with. And in fact, he may not be getting the full range of intelligence because of that, because he's either told people or his advisors have told the intelligence community, we don't want you bringing that up again. I have no doubt that the intelligence briefers, if there's something crucially important, they will still bring it up even knowing that. That's part of the job. But there may be some gray area in the middle that is a little bit different for this administration than others. And I'm gonna add this, even though it's not about the president, so I realize I'm violating the whole purpose of talking about this book, which is focused on the president, but the president is only one decision maker. He's the first customer, but he is the first customer of thousands of customers 
that the intelligence community supports. And I have no reason to believe that despite whatever this president is doing or not doing with intelligence briefings, the intelligence community continues to support cabinet level officials, undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, commanders in the field, desk officers at the Treasury Department, customs and borders. All kinds of customers are still getting intelligence. To that extent, you realize the intelligence enterprise still works, even if there is some kind of aberration at one level or another that requires some quick shifting. That's terrific, David. Thank you. Um, and I think over time, we'll probably get some more data, more information about uh, you know, how that all uh, has gone and, and is going. Um, one final question for you, sir, uh, and thank you very much for your time. Uh, what did briefers in general like most about their experiences, and what did they like the least? I talked to a, a lot of briefers. Uh, some of them, obviously, from the early days weren't, weren't there for me to talk to anymore, so I had to rely on accounts they had left behind, uh, like Dave Peterson uh, briefing Gerald Ford and going in to see Jimmy Carter one day, um, he, he had left some materials behind. Uh, Dick Lehman, who helped design presidential intelligence, had left behind some writings, uh, both officially through the CIA that were declassified, and also a long manuscript that he left with his son, who was kind enough to share it with me and talk about his, his father. All the briefers from that point up through our time in the last couple of decades, um, every briefer said either it was their favorite job they'd ever had at the agency or, or in that top tier um, because they had some other wonderful jobs. And I think that makes sense if you think about it because often the, the covert action wing of the CIA is talked about as the tip of the spear. Then um, there's a literal aspect to that. But when it comes to the intelligence enterprise overall, the only reason we collect all of this intelligence and put so much time and effort and skill into spotting, assessing, developing and recruiting sources and then handling those sources, often in great peril, is to get information that will be useful to policymakers. And the tip of that spear is the president's daily brief. It is getting information to the policymakers who either make decisions or inform the ultimate decision maker. And I, I think that has actually worked well overall. The briefers who have done so feel like they're carrying the burden of the intelligence community with them. No one I talked to took the job casually. They all took it very seriously and thought, I have a lot of responsibility here. Uh, in your case, Bill, um, you're, you're briefing the president and you know that the president can issue an executive order, he can order the fleet moved, he can call up a foreign leader. In theory, he can deploy U.S. forces based on something you say that he thinks has a policy, um, a policy impact that he should act on. Uh, in my case, I briefed the PDB in the White House a few times, but not the president. For my customer, um, sometimes I would go home after a, a day of briefing and meetings, and I would turn on the television. And I would see the Attorney General of the United States on television giving a, a speech about an arrest or something else. And I would hear my words coming out of his mouth because he paid enough attention to the intel briefings that that went into what he was saying. That's real impact. And as a briefer, I felt the responsibility of that. And I know most others did as well. The only negative side that I felt from some of the people I talked to 
Um, in one case, they felt like they they wanted even more access. This is the case of when there were briefers who did not get to see their principals every day, or the principals preferred solely to read the document instead of to interact with the briefer. Um, in which case, at, at the extreme, the briefer becomes a glorified courier, delivering the document, waiting around. There's not a question. You say thank you and you leave. That has happened through much of the agency's history. Uh, more recently, most briefings have been more interactive than that. So briefers generally love that experience. Um, and then also just the, the timing of it all. Um, you remember well that when you have a morning briefing, you wake up sometimes around midnight or one in the morning, you get to work, you spend the bulk of your day prepping for that briefing, asking the questions of yourself that you think the customer will ask you, and then going into that briefing and it's game time. Uh, afterwards, sure, you get to go home earlier than you used to on your last job, but you also get a few hours of sleep and then begin the cycle again. And for some briefers, that regular, not quite a night shift, but that, that shift of, of briefing on a different schedule and then trying to adjust back on the weekend to enjoy time with family when you could, that could actually be very difficult over a year or two of time. Um, but again, everyone who told me that it was difficult for various reasons said it was totally worth it to be able to brief this information to the president and other top officials. Yeah, David, thank you. Yeah, that, that, all, the, all of those themes resonate with me. And uh, just, a, just a, a short vignette is I remember uh, going into the bubble for my orientation in 1982. And um, one of the slides, because of course these were hard copy slides, um, showed a, a figure with a briefcase walking into the West Wing and the, the narrator or whomever was running the orientation said, yeah, and, you know, each day, one of our you know, senior officers goes into the uh, you know, White House to, to brief the president. And I'm thinking to myself as a you know, very, you know, two days with CIA, thinking, yeah, that sounds kind of cool. Never even dreaming that I would have that, that privilege and opportunity. And lo and behold, later I did. And, um, and like you said, in the most meaningful um, I think experience in, in my professional life and that, that privilege to represent not only CIA, but to represent the intelligence community in, you know, the best intelligence in the entire world. And uh, that was an honor for me. Um, let me uh, let me follow up on that with you, Bill. So you, you, you come in at a time they're, they're promoting that we're briefing the president, which we weren't. Um, we, were, we were taking the document into the White House and the National Security Advisor would get a briefing and the vice president would get a briefing. But Reagan himself didn't see a regular CIA briefer. Suddenly, you know, transport yourself 25 years in the future and you're delivering those briefings and you're actually seeing the president. What, what were your highlights or lowlights from briefing the president? Well, I think I, 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 I'm going to say that they're all highlights. Um, um, and uh, it is, you know, as described to me by another uh, PDB briefer, um, that going into the Oval Office every day is a character building experience. And it changes the next day and the next day. It's always different. Um, and um, it, uh, to say uh, I was nervous every day would be absolutely true. Um, why? 
um, it's pretty important. <laughs> you know, you're there to represent, um, again, the work of a lot of men and women across the IC um, who also stay up late finishing their pieces. Um, and um, But I think um, just that knowing and to be in that, uh, that situation, I was most honored and felt quite privileged. And, um, you know, like you said, I mean, you know, when you when you may not be in a briefer role and have your account, so to speak, at the CIA, you're not necessarily exposed to all of the great things that the agency and the community does. When you're looking and briefing the book every day, you're, I'm almost humbled to say, look at what these great Americans are doing to provide intelligence, you know, to the senior most policymakers, including the president. And uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's 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 great to hear you say that because um, I had a similar experience too. Um, I have to say there were some days, and there weren't many, where I would come in groggy-eyed at two or three in the morning, and I would look at the draft president's daily brief um, that was going to be delivered to the president and other customers in a few hours, and I would look at it and say, "That's it. You know, we we have how many tens of billions of dollars going into the intelligence community." And this is what we're giving to the president today. And honestly, those weren't the best days. Uh, and then I found out that, in fact, some of those were actually OK because I didn't think it was great, but it actually met the president where he was on a topic, even if it didn't have the, the sexiest secrets in it. But but it did give him what he needed. Uh, many more days I came in, opened up that draft PDB. I said, wow. Now I understand why we spend tens of billions of dollars on intelligence, because we had some really knockout pieces, both in terms of collection, getting into the PDB, but also some really fantastic analysis, some some work to, to put the pieces together in, in a way that was helpful to the president. And those days I felt proud as a briefer to represent that effort. Honestly, I also felt good as a taxpayer, feeling like, you know, we, we put a lot into this and it's and it's days like these that it really pays off. Yeah, absolutely. David couldn't agree more. And um, thank you so much for your time today. Um, this has been a terrific uh, interview. And I, um, you know, your book is fantastic. And I learn even more by listening to you. So I appreciate that very much. And um, Jim, let me turn this over to you. Thank you, Bill and David. That was fantastic. Great job. You know, one of the founding principles of AFIO in its 45-year history is to broaden public awareness about the mission, role, and people of the U.S. intelligence community, to tell um, the stories that deserve to be told, and to tell them well. You guys really did that today, so thank you very much. You know, um, as you gentlemen know, and most of our membership knows, uh, starting with um, Kennedy Johnson, um, portions of the uh, President's Daily Brief are now being declassified. Um, and CIA actually holds a public event uh, to present those to the public. Um, there have now been public events um, at the Johnson Library for the Kennedy uh, Johnson years and at the Nixon Library for the Nixon Ford years. What our membership may not know is that AFIO is actually a joint sponsor of those events. And it has been my great privilege to attend the events both at the um, Johnson Library and the Nixon Library. 
And I sincerely hope that I'm around long enough to go to the next one. <laughs> well, if the uh, if the 40 year declassification rule that was established to allow those declassifications continues, we are due now for the President Carter PDBs to be declassified and released. Uh, so hopefully you'll get the chance to do that. No, that's cool. Yeah. I can't wait to go to Georgia. <laughs> um, so thank you, gentlemen. Uh, to our audience at home, there are many more great stories to be told, and AFIO is committed to telling them. So stay tuned for the next great program on AFIO Now. <laughs>